what many of us are not uh, just joking about is, of course, what has preoccupied so much of the room of many of our hearts and minds these last, I think, now, unbelievably, just nine days since what happened in Japan has happened. So many times I have found myself speechless, watching TV, watching online media, reading the reports from the field, if you will, about the acts of heroism, speechless over the videos. I just saw one the other day, just 36 hours ago or so, a person who was driving in their car along a highway, and literally the moment when the wave swept up and took their car with it, the moment the tsunami hit them. Amazingly, the person who was taking the video survived and was able to share it with the world. Speechless sometimes in fear as well, too, that as it looks this morning, the reactor will not entirely melt down, but the fear that it might. And how many millions of people's lives would be affected, even more than the thousands already dead and the thousands more missing. And then there's something else that left me speechless this week. I'm going to read it to you. These words. I think the disaster is divine retribution, divine punishment. We need to use this tsunami to wipe out egoism, which has rusted onto the mentality of the Japanese people for far too long over a period of time. Goes to Jerry Falwell, maybe? Pat Robertson, maybe the Fred Phelps people, that church in Kansas that goes around and pickets soldiers' funerals because they are so deeply and bizarrely homophobic that they will never, 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 ever pass up an opportunity to play their horrendous anti-universalist, my God is bigger than your God game. And I can prove it to you by how badly the universe has just kicked your ass. Well, no. None of those people, none of the usual suspects, and I guess there's a little bit of cold comfort here to show that this kind of idiocy does not belong only to American Christian fundamentalists because the man who said this is the governor of Tokyo. Some of you might know. Some people will, because of their theology and because of their religion, never let an opportunity go by in which they cannot in some way think or try to prove that the victims are responsible for their own fate. So leaving aside such a dubious theology and way of looking at the world, I reject it entirely. And even let's say, yes, there has been a rash of egoism in Japanese politics over the last few decades. How many thousands of children had to die to prove that point? I reject that on its face. But I think there's even a deeper misunderstanding, a deeper question that a kind of way of looking at the world like this, raises up before us. Is violence itself at all or even ever an effective and meaningful way to bring about corrective change in life? Is violence ever a meaningful way to bring about true, positive life change? I will be the first to admit that in my life, pain has woken me up from time to time, and I've tried to listen to it. However, massive pain, trauma, the kind that either shuts us down or makes us externalize it and blame someone else or become so enraged with life that we become broken. I do not believe this kind of pain and this kind of violence has any positive meaning 
in our existence. I must tell you, if violence really was corrective itself, we would have a lot more happier and healthier people in this world. There would not be so many soldiers coming home from wars, thousands of them struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder. All those people that I have counseled over the years, countless now, who grew up in homes in which they were belittled or abused in body or mind or spirit, well, I guess all those people would just be the most well-adjusted folks in the world, right? Instead of having to struggle and often find that deep and necessary healing from coming from a place in which their very integrity and their very person was diminished day after day after day. I believe fully in what the great Catholic monk Thomas Merton wrote, that punishment and any understanding of violence as punishment, punishment cannot cure us of the feeling of our being unworthy. Punishment cannot do that, and violence does not do that. Over the last six months, I've preached on a whole bunch of different topics, a whole bunch of different messages, and I went back and I did kind of an inventory of that. As I started to sort of read, you know, little bits here and there, I saw one thing coming up and coming up and coming up over and over again, whether it was talking about in a communication series about loving speech and real listening to each other, about schoolyard or cyberbullying, about the suicide, if you remember the name, there have been so many tragedies since then, of Tyler Clementi, the young Rutgers student who took his own life after his very body was exposed for jest. Focusing, as I did a few months back, about perfectionism and the ways in which that has a tremendous shadow side of self-loathing and self-hatred, the kind of violent, violating thoughts that we have when we really believe that we are not worthy. Focusing, as I did just in the last couple months, as so many of us did, on the atrocity in Arizona, the attempted assassination of Gabby Gifford and the nine lives taken with that. I recognize that running all throughout these last six months, there has been this theme, this subtext, if you, if you will, in my preaching. It has been about how violence deforms our lives, about how violence is a way in which the world takes us apart. And I don't just mean physical violence, although that's certainly a part of it. I relate violence to the word which it comes from, violate, the same root word. Any forcible intrusion into the integrity of our body, mind, and spirit by the world or by other people. And also the interesting thing in violence is that in the Latin root word, it is linked very much to impetuousness, mindlessness, trying to get something done forcibly by our will without any regard for anyone else around us. The very opposite of mindfulness and heartfulness and taking time to recognize how truly unique and wonderful each and every one of us are. Violence is the very opposite of this. And so over the next few weeks, I'm going to take some time exploring a number of ideas here together. The idea of how we can be, sometimes in very small ways, peacemakers in our daily lives, how we can practice what some of the spiritual greats aspire to, what Gandhi aspired to, the understanding in Pali and Sanskrit of the word ahimsa, which means literally to be able to live without causing harm. When many of us have faced conflict in our lives, and I know I was guilty of this for far too long in my life, I didn't strike back, I ran away. 
or I pretended it wasn't there. Very often when we face threats, psychologists talk about that there's a a fight response or a flight response or a freeze response. But there's also, and this is the way of true peacemaking, a face response. Looking at the conflict and the violence, verbal, physical, or otherwise, that sometimes surrounds our lives when we find ourselves in the midst of it, and not pretending it isn't there, but instead learning to face with truth and honesty and the deepest kind of courage the fact that sometimes our lives are absent of peace. This is not giving in to aggression. This is not letting the bullies and the meanies and the tyrants have their way. It is learning to take our breath in as strong as we can and face the conflicts in our lives and to create peace as best we can there. Particularly in conflicted or traumatic times that I have found myself in the midst of, I think of one quote coming back and back and back to. It is by the ancient Hasidic teacher Reb Nachman of Bratislav. He wrote that the world is a narrow bridge and the point is to learn to not be afraid. I think it's exactly the lyrics that we just heard for what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding. Sometimes when we really do feel, perhaps in spite of what we really believe, that the world sometimes feels just an overwhelmingly bad place filled with people hurting each other. And that moment is so important. Well, maybe it would be superhuman to learn not to be afraid. So maybe we would bridge that just slightly. That the whole world is a narrow bridge. And maybe we can learn how to act not from fear. It is so important to not act from that fearful, that defensive place. Because when we do, we are most likely to not pay attention to our lives. We are most likely to excuse our own or someone else's negative or harmful behavior. We are most likely to say that someone else entirely is to blame. And if we could only blot them out or get rid of them, then everything could return back to peacefulness. With a deliberate practice of nonviolence in our lives, we can open up to a deeper truth. We can open up to the truth of the compassion that connects us all, knowing that we are all in this together, and also knowing that nonviolence very rarely changes anything quickly. It is not impetuous. It is intentional. One of the reasons I have become so deeply committed to living a path of greater nonviolence in my life is that because I am not a pacifist. I believe that sometimes there are situations in which force is called for, in which force is even a morally necessary good. Alongside Japan, so many of us are focusing this morning on what is going on in Libya. I do not believe right off the bat that the no-fly zone in Libya is necessarily a bad idea. But, (laughs) big, big, big But I wonder, what are we getting ourselves into again? Why not help out the people of Iran? They have been so brutalized, especially over the last year. They had tried to fight for their freedom. And I was preaching at the time when President Bush launched his wars. And I don't particularly like him very much. I'm much more fond of President Obama. 
but he has entirely dropped the ball. No case has been made. I'm sorry. A five-minute speech on a Friday afternoon before leaving the country to go to Brazil, that doesn't cut it. If we are going to use force, I need as a citizen to understand what the compelling reason is, and I don't see it yet. And at the same time, I know I am so drawn to that idealistic worldview that believes this is the time, this is the opportunity in which forced use absolutely for humanitarian reasons will be clean and easy and tidy. But my experience leads me not to be that credulous. And so I believe in nonviolence because sometimes force is necessary. But force is too often necessary, we might think. I believe absolutely with what Jesus said, that blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. I love that metaphor. Jesus spoke in metaphors all the time. He multiplied his metaphors as a way of getting his point across. I love that idea of sons and daughters of God, of life itself, however you would translate that. I love that familial sense because that truly is what peacemaking and nonviolence allows us to do, invites us to do in very small ways in the midst of our lives. Understand that there is so much more that unites us than divides us. In violence, we would seek very often, verbal, physical, or otherwise, to say that if only through violence we could remove the person or the people who are the problem, everything else would be okay. But peacemaking is most in tune with the reality of creation, which is that everything is interdependent. We are a part of the world, and the world is part of us. And in seeking to live lives of nonviolence, aspiring to that, we recognize that we are all connected. The hope, the deep hope of nonviolence, is that life can be win-win, even when we believe that someone has to lose. Living life nonviolently, I guess the easiest way that I could sum it up is that it opens up a kind of space within us. Violence, if we think about it, I mean, think about the image, very tense, very tight, very fearful, very defended. Over the last six, maybe seven weeks, I have been engaging in what is called the practice of mindfulness-based stress reduction. It is not because I have been any more stressed over the last six weeks or last six months than I have ever been in my life. And probably actually six years ago, I was much more stressed than I have been in the last six months. But I wanted to deepen my practice, my understanding that this is my life, <laughs> that this is the reality of where I am, and truly, in mindfulness-based practices, which can be meditation, which can be yoga, which can be walking, which can be eating, which can be breathing, to use Thich Nhat Hanh's great image, it can be learning to wash the dishes, to wash the dishes, for those of you who have taken our springboard listening to our lives. Mindfulness teaches us to maintain awareness of our thoughts, our actions, our speech, not through control, but through basically just learning to wake up. I'm a person who's actually quite competitive, and I'm a person who has a real tough time in my life getting a hold. Not that I outwardly express it very much, 
but in dealing with anger and aggression. Mindfulness continues to teach me to open up space in my life when I want to go like this, grip my teeth. And I got to tell you, the other night, we were sitting on the couch, it was after a long day, and I did not even realize it. My wife said, you know, you're, I can hear you grinding your teeth. <laughs> That's just that violence turned inward. <laughs> Mindfulness teaches us to open up when we wish to close down. This past Monday, I heard a show that actually a member of the congregation called and told me it was on. Voices of the Family, do you know that? On Monday afternoons, Dan Gottlieb is at a long-running show on NPR. I absolutely love it. And he had a, a woman named Kristen Neff on who studies what she calls self-compassion. I'm going to ask you to show the website, if you would, right here. Selfcompassion.org. There are sort of three main components to self-compassion. One is kindness. Kindness directed towards the self. And by the way, that doesn't mean she was a great pain to say self-esteem. I feel great about myself, so I'm being kind about myself. No. Self-kindness is most important when actually we don't feel good about ourselves, but we still can assert and really believe that we have dignity and worth. And that leads to the second part of self-compassion, that we recognize that we share that common humanity with everyone, that just as we have that dignity and wholeness within us, so do other people. And so it brings us beyond just our own sometimes closed-up mind space and heart space. And then that third element is mindfulness, learning to awaken to where we are, how we are, as we are within our very lives right here and right now. Now, if you go to that website, self-compassion, self-compassion.org, you can take a little test. I love to take tests. That's the problem. I love to take tests. You can, you can prove to yourself how, you know, what, what your level of self-compassion is. And I'll put it this way. I scored in the very lowest end of the highest level of self-compassion. I mean, the very lowest end, like you had to round up a number to get me from the sort of middle third to the top there. But I did it. I did it. And, you know, I got to tell you immediately, I almost started to judge myself. I mean, here I am, you know, if you've ever sat down and talked with me in a time of trouble, you know, self-compassion is one of the first things I encourage people to have for themselves. There, I should be better at this, I thought. <laughs> and then I recognized as you broke the score down. It was my self-judgment score that was the lowest of all of them. And that brought my total self-compassion score down. So it held up a little bit of insights before me. But as they continued with uh, this conversation, Dan Gottlieb and Kristen Neff, about self-compassion, a woman called in and you could hear the pain in her voice. It just sort of woke me up in the moment when I was driving along and listening to it. A woman who just asked plaintively from the heart, how do you have compassion for yourself if you just can't feel it at all? And they talk a little bit about, you know, that it's different than self-esteem. You don't have to feel good about yourself, but it's really just recognizing you have worth and value. And when she spoke up again, you could hear that she had started to cry. And Dan Gottlieb at that point, I give him a lot of credit for doing amazing therapy over the radio. He said, do you have someone that you love? Someone that you love, and she paused. There was silence on the line. I give him credit for holding that open space and not forcing an answer. And she said, well, I have a dog that I'm really close to. And Dan Gottlieb said, the reason that I offer this up is what I'd encourage you to do is to go over 
a dog or a person, or even just yourself, if that's the only beating heart that you can be next to. And put your hand, put your hand over your heart. And just feel your heartbeat. Do that right now with me, would you? Just feel your very heartbeat. This is one of the reasons we have drums here at Wellsprings. It's the rhythm of the universe, this essential thing that keeps us going. He said, sometimes we just get so disconnected from this basic, you can keep doing it or you can take it away, whatever you want to do. You don't have to, there's no obligation. Keep it there if you want to. You're pledging allegiance, not to any flag, to life itself. I love this suggestion. When we are angry at ourselves or have vehemence towards ourselves or another person or the great pain that this woman expressed, there is something so primordial and ancient and preconceptual about just reminding ourselves of our own beating hearts. It reminds me of that wonderful Eastern practice that I've preached about quite a number of times over the last six months of namaste, of bowing to another, and not just to their honor, but only being able to do that bow in their direction because, as namaste says, the divine in me recognizes the divine in you. And that bow was very intentional. Because the hands are clasped right over the heart space. Remembering the value of our lives. And in doing that, remembering what it is to open again. It is so important to remember these basic kind of devotional practices. Which are simple to do. And yet sometimes so easy to forget especially to remember them when life itself or another person seems to be just working on our last nerve like a drill pumping into a rotten tooth or like we were just a punching bag. I'll share a story with you that for me really encapsulates what nonviolent understanding mindful communication is all about. It comes from a man named Mark Golston who wrote a book called Just Listen. And he talked about the inspiration for this book. And he wrote it after his wife had given birth to their second child. Now their first child, name was Laura, was six years old. Laura did not, shall we say, deal well with this new arrival. She became oppositional and defiant And basically became in a six-year-old body a two-year-old all over again. She would snarl and curse and sometimes hit out. Favorite word was no. Gritted teeth, no. Go to bed, no. Eat, no. She could not accept. She had such vehemence, such anger that there was this new life sort of taking her space. And one day, Mark Olson said that it really... Didn't come to blows. He wasn't about to strike his child. Came down to a stare off, a showdown in their living room. She had just been absolutely awful, yelling at everyone in the house. The mom finally said, I can't take it. I'm going to go with the newborn and just go get away. This is your deal, Mark. You've got to deal with this. And he said, you know, his instinct, and it certainly was deserved, was to pick her up physically, no matter how much she struggled, and take her to her room and just lock the door. Because she had deserved a timeout. 
But in this little stare down across the living room that he was having with her, with every angry word that she uttered, every no, every gritted teeth, vehement response, he kept asking, what is it? What is it, Laura? What is it? What is it? What is it? And then Laura hopped up on the coffee table and flew into her dad's arms and tightly wrapped herself around his neck and started to bawl. And she said, I was the first one to be born. That means I'm going to be the first one to die. Sometimes in so many ways, the world is a narrow bridge. And we have to learn how not to be afraid. And Mark thought about what he tried to do that day. And he thought to himself, what if I had sent my six-year-old daughter to her room because of her terror over her own death? That is peacemaking. To learn to deal sometimes with another person's vehemence and not run away from it and not fight back, but to face it. I would dare say then, especially those of you who are parents, might especially know something like this, but I would dare say that all of us in our lives, it could be a coworker, it could be a parent, it could be a child, it could be a spouse, it could be a friend, that all of us at one point or another face something like what Mark Golston faced. Perhaps we're facing it right now in our lives. And so I'd ask you, in an intimate way, Where is the path of peacemaking in your life today? We do not make peace where there is peace. Just celebrate it. Share it. We make peace where there is conflict. We make peace by facing the reality of our lives mindfully as we are. This is the kind of peacemaking that is not idealized, but instead calls us out into the reality of our lives. I feel about peace the way that I feel about God and the way that I experience God. Not that it is something to be had or a doctrine to be believed, but as a deep and dynamic daily calling to enter more fully into the healing and the innate wholeness of our lives if only we would show up so that we can help one day at a time. The parts exist in harmony with the larger whole. This way to experience peace, I would even say a way to experience divinity, contrary to the governor of Tokyo, has nothing to do with some figure or some being who shifts tectonic plates or imposes judgments from above or sends tsunamis or causes nuclear fuel rods to overheat. It is an aspiration to live as our DNA invites us and to in this way know that divine spark, that namaste, that God, that soul, whatever you would wish to call it, by living fully and loving generously and being who we are called to be. That can only really happen today. And so wherever there is conflict in your life today, I encourage you to have the strength 
to be joyfully emboldened, to face what is there, and to know, as I see almost every day on my drive here, this tiny little Quaker meeting friend's house that I never see anyone going in and out of, except it's been around since the 1750s or something. And this little sign that they hold up, and I try to listen, there is no path to peace. Peace is the path. May it be yours today. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Divine, sacred spark, God of many names, may we recognize that the process of life is so chaotic, that this creation is groaning with birthing and growth pains, that sometimes take the shape of violence. May we have the strength and the dignity of spirit that allows us to face the truth of our lives as they are, that allows us to be sons and daughters and kin of all that connects us with life, and to be this day makers of a peaceful path. May peace attend to us as we attend to peace. Amen.